Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a podcast and podcast show that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience, and wisdom from thousands of successful individuals from around the world. I'm your host, Ashutosh Garg, and today I'm privileged to welcome a very, very senior and accomplished and respected professional from the world of academia, Professor Anthony R. Ingrafia from Ithaca, New York, USA. Tony, welcome to the show. It's a great privilege to be with you today. Thank you. Uh, professor Ingrafia is the Dwight C. Baum Professor Emeritus at Cornell University. He has authored with his students and research associates over 250 area papers in these areas, and he's been recognized, felicitated, and awarded several times. So, Tony, before we talk about the fossil fuel industry, which is your area of specialization, tell me a little bit about your own journey and what drew you to the field of engineering. Ah. As usual, one teacher saying one thing at one time in one class mm -hmm. just goes, as we all know, it's so important to have when you're a teacher to be aware of the one thing you're going to say to a student that's going to set that student off on the life's path. Mm -hmm. So my physics and chemistry teacher in high school took me aside one day after class and said, you're going to be an aerospace engineer. Mm -hmm. And I, what? <laughs> Amazing. And that's what happened. My first college experience was in aerospace engineering. That got me interested in structures, how you put things together so they don't fall apart. Mm -hmm. And that eventually led to the opposite of that, which is how do you figure out why a structure has fallen apart, mm -hmm. which, of course, sometimes leads to a study of cracking and fracture. Mm. And cracking and fracture, of course, in the industrial sector is sometimes loved, right. sometimes hated. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have to crack things to make them work. In the aerospace, aerospace industry, you don't want things to crack. Absolutely. Wings need to stay on an airplane, not fall off. <laughs> yes. But in the fossil fuel industry, mm -hmm. and in general in the energy production industry, since most of our energy comes from underground, unfortunately, yeah. whether it's coal or oil or gas, or geothermal, mm. it comes out of rock. Mm. And you can't get it out unless you crack the rock. Well said. So as my education went on, after my bachelor's and master's degree, I pursued a PhD. And that was during the first energy crisis uh, in the US in the mid-70s because of geopolitics. Yeah, And there was a great effort at that point to inspire young scientists and engineers to get involved in creating American energy. Mm. Right? So we don't have to import. So I decided to study the fracture mechanics of rock. How do you crack rock mm -hmm. uh, to get heat out of it or gas out of it or oil out of it or water out of it? Mm -hmm. um, and that led me down the path I've been on now since the mid 1970s. How amazing. What an amazing journey. Thank you for sharing this. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the fossil fuel industry. Uh, one was, of course, you, as you just mentioned, you learned how to crack rock and get energy out of it. But what led you to focus on the environmental impact of the fossil fuel industry? Up until, I'd say, 20 years ago, mm -hmm. even though... You know, as a common citizen, as a scientist, engineer, I was aware of the rising issue of climate change right. um, as part of our environment. Um, I was not really active mm. in 
the environmental side of things. I was working with the oil and gas industry as a consultant, and the oil and gas industry was funding the research of my graduate students, mm -hmm. many of them at Cornell University. So I was aiding and abetting the oil and gas industry getting oil and gas out of rock. Mm -hmm. I did that for over 25 years. Mm -hmm. And then in the early, early part of this century, they lost interest in the work I was doing and I lost interest in the work they were doing. Uh, and I went back to my aerospace roots for about a decade. But then in about 2008, mm -hmm. I became aware of this thing called fracking. Mm -hmm. I hate that word <laughs> for many reasons. Um, and so I had friends in academia who were wondering, what's fracking? What's this all about? It was becoming a hot topic in the U.S., especially in the area where I live yeah. in New York, where the oil and gas industry was seeking to develop shale gas, mm -hmm. which is the phrase I'd rather use than fracking because it's much more accurate. Right. Uh, so I began going back into the literature, reading the papers, reading the reports, and became alarmed. Mm -hmm. uh, work that I had done with the oil and gas industry in the 1980s, 30 years before, <laughs> to try to understand how you could possibly get gas and oil out of shale using a very advanced form of what people call fracking. It's really called hydraulic stimulation. Right. I became alarmed because it was that scaled up um, 30 years before I became interested again. If the gas industry needed to stimulate a gas well, mm -hmm. they would need about a million gallons of water. Wow. And a couple hundred tons of sand. Mm -hmm. But the wells that were being drilled in shale were requiring 10 million gallons of water or more mm. and thousands of tons of sand. And they were being drilled everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, so that there were technological changes, geological changes, driving technological changes, because whereas getting oil or gas out of non-shale requires you to find a reservoir, a pocket, a bubble. In shale, the gas and oil is everywhere. Right. Everywhere the shale has it, you can go get it, mm. which means you have to drill everywhere. Mm. So they were drilling many more wells, using much more water, producing much more waste, requiring much more heavy equipment and transportation of sand and chemicals to the sites. And the sites themselves were different. We're not talking Oklahoma anymore. Right. We're not talking Texas. Mm. We're talking in my backyard. Correct. Here in New York or in the in the agricultural fields of Pennsylvania and Ohio and West Virginia. So all those things added up to my becoming very alerted, very aware, very fearful. Mm -hmm. And that caused me to become more of an advocate for public education. Right. What do the people of New York need to know before they say yes or no? To having shale gas developed in their backyards, literally in their backyards. Right. Very interesting. So in 2009, I set off on what became now a 14 year process of putting myself into the public arena, mm -hmm. which I had not done 
right before that that's it and being in the public arena as you know brings its own benefits and curses correct because depending upon what you say and to whom you say it mm -hmm. you usually get a response <laughs> an immediate response as opposed to publishing a paper which might not give her ever get any response mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. so i went on the road literally around the world not just in new york and pennsylvania right. but around the world trying to inform the public inform regulators inform legislators of the new risks of developing shale gas and shale oil mm. so that's it that's Excellent. that brought me to where we are today so over the last 14 or 15 years i've been a public educator researcher trying to point out that boy this is a really bad thing to do at just the worst time to do it mm. fascinating but now you know the world is also talking a lot about renewable energy i'd love to get your perspective even though i mean i don't know much about the industry but i still think i was told that renewables are still very very small i'd love to get your perspective on the traditional sources of energy versus renewable sources 10 years ago 15 years ago on a global scale fossil fuels were responsible responsible for producing 90% of all the energy consumed by humankind mm -hmm. for transportation for heating for industry for commercial activity flying boating submarining whatever you were burning a fossil fuel coal oil or gas to generate the energy right here we are 10 15 years later that number 90% is now down to about 80% global mm. regionally things can be different if you're talking about the state of california or the state of new york or the state of texas you get a totally different picture mm -hmm. some renewables in the form of solar or wind or water mm. have grown tremendously at annual rates of increase of 10 15 20% mm. over the last 15 years mm. so there's some regions in the US some regions around the world some countries around the world mm -hmm. where the share of renewable green energy is approaching 50% of all the energy consumed mm -hmm. in that region or that state mm -hmm. so the trends are good mm -hmm. all the trends showing the rate of increase of solar energy generation wind energy generation different forms of water energy generation mm -hmm. geothermal wave hydro um the trends are all in the right direction good the problem is the rate of change is way yeah. too slow yeah yeah and i'd also get your love to get your thoughts on the nuclear uh, option which also i'm told is uh, a significant one but it has its own attendant risks yes so on the renewable side of things mm -hmm. the scientists the engineers the public the legislators the regulators who are pushing rapid growth of green energy there's a split some feel that an absolutely essential part of green energy is nuclear energy and some say on that same side no it carries too much risk we can do it without nuclear that issue is hotly debated and unsettled some of the brightest minds the best people who for 40 years have been saying climate change is upon us it's getting it's getting worse it's happening faster 
we need nuclear because it is a huge source of energy. You need many square miles, many square kilometers of solar panels to equate to one nuclear power plant. Correct. Uh, but it's risk reward and also cost. The cost of nuclear energy is much higher than the cost per unit of energy of solar or wind or hydro. So it becomes a very, you've been a businessman, you know how complex yeah. you know, all these moving parts. Absolutely. You got the environmental, you got the political, you got the uh, cost, you got the legislative, you got insurance. If nobody will insure a nuclear power plant against some catastrophe, that nuclear power plant is not going to get built. Absolutely right. Well said. Well said. And, uh, you know, as you just mentioned a few minutes back about <clears throat> traveling every all over the world, educating people on the challenges of fracking and uh, the fossil fuel industry. What are your thoughts on the role of individual consumer choices in reducing the demand for fossil fuels? I love that question. It's the question I usually get after every presentation that I make. And, and so I have a canned answer. Uh, at the individual scale, head of household, a single person, mm -hmm. what can you do? What should you do to facilitate the what we call the energy transition going from predominantly fossil fuel based to predominantly green energy based? Decrease your demand for fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Increase your demand for renewable. Increase your supply of renewable energy and decrease your use of fossil fuels. Well, how do those words translate into yeah. everyday mm -hmm. action? Mm -hmm. Well, most of us drive cars. Yeah. So drive an electric vehicle. Mm -hmm. You're decreasing your demand for a fossil fuel. You're decreasing emissions from your transportation mode, right? And you're increasing your demand for renewable energy because you only want to be driving that EV if the electricity from it for it is coming from the sun, from wind, or from water okay? in your home. Make sure your home is well insulated, not drafty. Uh, substitute out for your oil burning furnace or your gas burning furnace, a heat pump. Much more efficient, uses electricity, doesn't burn fossil fuels. Right. In your kitchen. Turn off the gas stove. <laughs> Substitute in an electric appliance for cooking your meals. Same thing with heating your hot water. There are a lot of things that individuals can do in their everyday life to decrease their demand for fossil fuels, increase their demand for green energy, use more green energy, use less fossil fuels. And that, that scales up, right? From the individual to the family, from the family to the city from the city to the county from the county to the state etc cetera, etc cetera. Yes. and the higher up you go in that scale ladder the more difficult it becomes mm -hmm. because That's now right. the individual voice gets diluted mm. great response you thank you great response mm -hmm. my next question to you tony is how important is it for academia to engage with real world environmental problems and how have you approached this in your life and your career oh boy Here's a spectrum mm. of academics. Yeah. 
So over here, you have the academic who does what academics do. You do research and you publish that research, hopefully peer-reviewed publications, and the paper goes out there. And at this end of the scale, you hope somebody reads the paper and you hope somebody reacts to the paper and does something with the new data or information in the paper. Mm. So if we're talking the energy transition, if you just write papers and you throw them over the transom of your office door and hope that somebody comes by and picks them up, a legislator or a regulator or the president or the prime minister, mm-hmm. and they do something, that's wishful thinking. Right. But if that's what you want to do, that's what you do. And that's what most academics do. Mm-hmm. On the other end of the spectrum, you have an academic who says, I've done this research. I've determined that something has to be done. I've published the papers. Nobody's listening. There are no new regulations, no new laws, same old, same old. I'm going to go off and become an eco-terrorist. Mm-hmm. How's that for an extreme? Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> Every academic I know is somewhere in between. Right. I don't know any eco-terrorists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do know some people who got close, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but somewhere in between. So where am I? Okay. Well, I'm not here and I'm not here. Mm-hmm. I'm here moving this direction. Right. Not towards violence, but mm-hmm. towards magnifying my voice. Mm-hmm. So I'm not optimistic that every paper I've written in the area of the energy transition, and I've written many, is immediately going to be read and acted upon. Mm-hmm. I'm not optimistic. Very interesting. So I then have to do something else than write papers. An academic who does something more than write papers. Mm-hmm. I already mentioned I get into the public arena. I'm not writing papers anymore. I'm not doing basic research. I'm trying to educate not the scientific public, but the general public. Right. That's unusual for an academic. Mm-hmm. I go and testify before legislators. I write reports for regulators. Mm-hmm. I get involved in lawsuits. I get sued. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. That's unusual for an academic to get sued because <laughs> of something mm-hmm. I've written. And I come to the assistance of individuals and families who I have determined have been harmed by fossil fuels. They've been harmed personally because of health effects. They've lost water supply to their homes. Mm -hmm. They've lost the value of their homes because a home that does not have an adequate water supply is not a home. It's a campsite. Yeah. So I, I do all these things that prior to 2008 were never within my spectrum. Mm -hmm. So I have acted out of the usual mainstream of academic endeavors. Is that for all academics? No. You got to make your choices. Mm -hmm. Very good. Thank you. My next question is that given the recent developments of breakthroughs in clean energy technology, Does this give you any hope for the future? Yes, definitely yes. Um, Solar will continue. Mm -hmm. There won't be any major new breakthroughs in the technology of solar energy generation. Mm -hmm. Wind will continue. There won't be any new major breakthroughs in wind energy. Right. Hydro, 
there won't be any major new breakthroughs in hydro. So the only thing you could do there is scale them up. Right. Okay. But what other forms might there be? We all hope that at some point, fusion energy, which has been promised, the, the joke in the fusion energy field is that every 10 years, the fusion energy people promise that 10 years from now we'll have it. Yes. Yes. Um, and then every once in a while, you read a headline in a newspaper or a magazine saying we're that much closer mm. to fusion energy. Um, geothermal, I think, is an underrated, still underrated source of renewable energy. Here we are going back down underground. You have to break rock to get oil and gas out of it. You have to break rock to get coal from underground. You also have to break rock to get heat out of it. And every place on the face of the earth, every country, is sitting on top of an infinite supply of heat. Mm. It might be 100 meters down, it might be 1,000 meters down, maybe 10,000 meters down. But it's there. But how do you get it up? Mm. That's an active, very active area of both basic and applied research in which I have tremendous hope, uh, confidence that there will be tremendous breakthroughs. Uh, we need a couple of proof cases where the economics pan out. Um, and we we can see around the world, there are cities right now around the world that are almost entirely mm. heated mm. and electrified by geothermal. Mm. We need to scale that up. And then there is the magic. The magic that occurs in academia where a very bright graduate student mm. walks into the office of her advisor and says, I have this idea. I, I don't, I'm not sure it's a good idea, but can you work with me and I'll try to figure this out? Mm -hmm. That's the magic of academia, right? right. We've seen that. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> All these wonderful things that happen yeah. because a student somewhere mm. walks into our advisor's office and then magic happens. Mm. Amazing. I have great confidence that because of the urgency that we're feeling, because of climate change, um, that magical things are going to happen, hopefully in the next few years, because mm -hmm. we're running out of time. We can't afford another 10 or 20 years of um, development time for good ideas. We need really good ideas now that can quickly get to market. Mm, well said, well said. So I have time for two more questions for you. Sure. My next question is that given all the work that you are doing, Tony, how do you see the relationship between industry, government, and academia evolving to address these big challenges? Hmm. Well, the two industries that I'm worried about are the oil and gas industry. Yeah. And right now, its relationship with government is too cozy. Correct. And its relationship with academia and the public hmm. Depends upon which university you're talking about. Uh, and depends upon depends upon which side of the political spectrum you're on. Mm. I'm speaking from the point of view of the United States. Roughly half the people in the country would like to see more fossil fuels. Mm. They don't care very much about climate change. Mm. And they want the government to stay out of regulation. Yeah. The other half are saying we need more regulation. We need fewer fossil fuels. And we need more renewables. Mm. And if you're an academic, again, you're going to take a side. Mm. 
Um, and that's, that's unfortunate because that's not the way science is supposed to work for the people. There aren't supposed to be sides in science. Correct. You should look at the picture as it is. Mm. Climate change is real. Oop, yeah. Half the people in the country don't think that's true, but that's a problem. Yeah. If climate change is real, then what do we have to do to address it? There are a certain set of technological things that have to get done, mm. regulations, laws. So the relationship then between the renewable industry, which doesn't have nearly the political impact, the political power, the lobbying capability mm-hmm. as the fossil fuel industry around the world right. is way behind. You can't expect uh, senators and congressmen in the United States to get large donations from a nascent renewable energy industry yeah. that they can easily get from a 150-year-old fossil fuel industry, which has infinite resources. Mm -hmm. So that makes this relationship among government, industry, the people, the science, the academics, Mm -hmm. uneven. Mm -hmm. It's unsymmetric. It's like unsymmetric warfare. They're they're fighting with huge weapons, and the other side is pea shooter. Absolutely. But I'm sure we'll get there. And my last question to you uh, is that what message or call to action would you like to leave our viewers and listeners with regarding the urgency of sustainability and climate action? Do what you can do Mm. in your own home without hesitation. Mm. do what you can do outside your home without hesitation. Mm. If that means attending meetings, writing letters to the editor, Mm. uh, lobbying at your, at the local level or at the state level or at the federal level uh, with organizations that are like-minded, get involved. You cannot just sit back and hope that somebody is going to do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Do it yourself. Mm-hmm. And the most important thing I can say is do it quickly. Yeah. The science really clearly indicates now that climate change is not something that's going to happen in 2050 yeah. or 2100. It's happening now. It's happening now. This decade that we're in mm-hmm. is the decisive decade, and it's nearly half gone. Yeah. Well said. Tony, on that note, and your amazing uh advice do what you can do in your home and outside your home without hesitation and second you said do it quickly do it now thank you so much for speaking to me about your own amazing journey thank you for speaking to me about the fossil fuel industry about fracking i learned many new things from you today thank you also for the many points that you gave that each one of us as individuals can do to do our own bit because when it comes to something as important as climate change most of us say i'd like to do but what will one individual be able to make a difference but what the message you've given is if each one of us puts our shoulder to the wheel the difference will be seen thank you for speaking to me and good luck to you thank you very much ash it's been a pleasure to be with you thank you for listening to the brand called you video cast and podcast 
platform that brings you knowledge, experience and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search for the brand called you.